Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17. As you do so, I want to just kind of start our, our mental wheels thinking about the idea of faith. Faith um, today, just in our context, in our society, and our culture is often kind of seemingly this, this vague, abstract notion. But it essentially is a, a firm belief and a strong conviction of the truth of a God that we cannot see, faith at least in our context, right? We, we can't see God. But we believe in who he is and, and we believe we have faith that he has spoken and we have a strong conviction about those things. And yet that conviction can sometimes feel kind of theoretical, a little bit abstract. It can kind of sometimes be easy to stick it into the slot of something that's nice to talk about or even debate about, and yet then sort of leave it in the realm of talk and debate. Um, and it doesn't really intersect with real life all that often. But my goal is through God's word to help you see that faith Anchored in a right view and knowledge of God is much more than an abstract notion. It is practical and it is life-altering. Walking with God in true faith is the very opposite of bland, kind of vanilla religious life. Biblically, the expectation and example is that faith-filled living is radical living. And we'll be looking at this evening three facets of a radically bold faith. And we'll see how that played out in a real person who believed in a real God. This is important to kind of mentally prime yourself about. We're going to be talking about David, okay? And all the songs about only a boy named David and only a little sling and all that kind of stuff are going to pop into your head. You're going to have the flannel graph in your mind and all that kind of stuff. But remember... That Mission Road believes, and hopefully you believe, that these narratives are, are talking about real people and what happened to them. So as, as tangible and real as I am, David was a real man who was faced with real situations and then had to decide how real his God was to then impact his response to real life or not. So don't forget that. This is not theory. This is not abstract. David, David was a real man, and he believed in a real God. So let's look at 1 Samuel 17. And as we go through, we'll end up pulling some principles about radically bold faith. 1 Samuel 17, let's look at verse 1. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesh Damim. Now, this is an invasion. All right? Philistines, if you, if you think about it this way, you've got, you've got the, the nation of Israel. And then over in this sliver along the coastline was the Philistine land. Okay? And you see, they were gathered, the Philistines were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. So they had invaded. 
And they camped between Socho and Azekah, which was in uh, Philistia. And, and so they spanned the border and they were engaging the Israelites in war. So that's on one side. And on the other side of the valley of Elah, in verse 2, Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. And they drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. Then, this is, this is how the writer sets up the, the tension and the drama of the story. I love it. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. Now, that's intended to impress and wow you, but we don't know what shekels are. (laughs) We don't know what, what, a, what a cubit or, or a span is necessarily, so let's go back. Verse 4, then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was approximately nine feet six inches. Ben Hyman, how tall are you? Ben's a big dude. Three more feet than, than Ben Hyman. Okay, and then the proportionate girth and bulk and all that kind of stuff. All right? Nine foot six. Goliath had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 126 pounds. That's just his armor. That's more than I weigh. No, I'm just kidding. But 125 pounds of armor on a nine foot six warrior, okay? He had bronze coverings on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. And not only did did he have that javelin slung between his shoulders, but he had a spear. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. So, you know, approximately something like this because they were industrial sized weavers. Okay, this wasn't some some little, little home. Weaver's beam. This was a beam, and that is what, 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 what the shaft of his, his spear was. And the head of his spear weighed 15 pounds. Okay, so you can picture all that in terms of like chucking a 15-pound weight attached to a, you know, a large rod of, of wood hefted by a man nine, over nine feet tall who could wear 125 pounds of armor, no problem. Paint a little bit of a picture in your head. This is not your everyday occurrence. So this man, this champion, verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And here's the deal. Here's his challenge. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. 
But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. He's throwing down an all or nothing challenge, right, to the Israelites. Saying, look, we don't have to do a lot of bloodshed. Let's just do man on man, winner takes all. You beat me, you win it all. I beat you, we win it all. Put it all on the line here. When Saul and all Israel, verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The author is very deliberate here when he says when Saul and all Israel, because not only was the army afraid, but their king was afraid. Why did they choose Saul to be king? Because he was the biggest. He was the tallest, the handsomest, the strongest. So they wanted him to be their king. And yet their king, who was supposed to be the the champion, the representative of Israel, along with all of the nation, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And this, this I think, is the author's actual point in including this uh, narrative even in the, the book of 1 Samuel as a whole. Because Saul is on his way out as king, and David is on his way in. And so here we're going to see a direct contrast between a man who had no faith and a man who had radically bold faith. But Saul and all Israel, when they heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 12, now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and the second to him was Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. Now, the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. I think that reaches back to chapter 16, where it talks about him being the harp player for Saul. And so he would go and he'd play the harp for David, and then he'd go back uh, for Saul. And then he'd go back and he would tend to the sheep. And then when Saul had a need, some of these seizure or these weird episodes that he was having, then they'd call and have David come. And you know, so back and forth, back and forth. Verse 16. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. The Marine in the front row is laughing. This is psychological warfare, right? That's 80 times he issued this challenge. What's wrong with you? I'm the Philistine. You're just the servants of Saul. Come on, bring a champion. We'll fight together and the winner takes it all once, twice, three, four, five, six, seven times, eight times, nine times, ten times. You get the point, right? Time after time after time. And then the more times that nobody responded, the more demoralized everybody was getting. That's just human nature, I would think. Oh, man. For the 69th time, here comes that giant. He's going to mock us. He's going to make fun of us. He's going to challenge us. And we're all just going to be scared. Nobody's come forward the last 68 times. Why would this be any different? See? 
And it got to 80 times that he did that. It was a siege. It was a mental warfare siege that Goliath was, was waging on the Israelites. In verse 17, then Jesse said to his son, take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these 10 loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. See, they, they, didn't, they didn't feed the soldiers. The soldiers had to find provisions from, from their families. So he's saying, go, go feed your brothers. Verse 18, bring also these 10 cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. It never hurts to give a little present to the commanding officers of the people that you care about. Send them a cut of cheese, and they'll, they'll be t- well taken care of. Ten cuts of cheese, even better. So Jesse sends his, his son David on an errand to bring food to the boys, the men, and to uh, bring a gift to their commander. Verse 19, for Saul and they, the brothers, and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah, fighting-ish with the Philistines. Okay. So David arose early in the morning and he left the flock with the keeper and he took the supplies and he went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array shouting the war cry. I think this is just, this, this is just a, an attempt at generating some confidence. You know, it's, it's the underdog team getting ready to go fight the, the reigning champions, and they're doing, a, they're doing a cheer and a war cry to try and sort of rally themselves. They're trying to muster something up. But the verses will tell us ahead that the response was the same. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words, and David heard them. What did he hear? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. If I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. And that's what David heard. Verse 24. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. Did a little 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 team rally ahead of the game didn't do them any good. The men of Israel said, "Have you seen this man who is coming up? Yes, they've seen him for 40 days, but they're still astounded. Have you seen this man?" Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king, you know, this man that we thought was handsome and strong and, and would lead us well, the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. The king was doing everything possible to entice someone to be faithful and brave on his behalf. Tax free. Marry into the royal family, wealthy beyond any need you have. But David, who hadn't heard this, then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Now that's an interesting twist. 
right? Who did, who did Goliath taunt? He said, aren't you the men of Saul? That's all you are. You're just the men of Saul. I'm a Philistine. But David realizes, no, 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 no. Well, this is not the armies of Saul. This is the armies of the living God. And he's coming out to taunt the armies of God. Verse 27, the people answered him in accord with this word, what was up, ahead, up, uh, up the, in the text a little bit more, and said, thus it will be done for the man who kills him. He'll be enriched, he'll get to marry the king's daughter, and his father's house will be tax-free. Now, a little family drama enters the picture. Eliab, his oldest brother. How many of you have an older or oldest brother? Okay, you're going to be able to relate to this. Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke, when David spoke to the men, saying, what's going to be done for the man who, who takes care of this Philistine? So Eliab hears this, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom, <laughs> with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Check that out. He's knocking his job. I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. He says, uh, he says you're just coming to rubberneck. You're a little, little irresponsible younger brother, just so obnoxious coming down, you know, shooting off your mouth and leaving your few sheep off in the wilderness. But, but the younger brother David said, what have I done now? Wasn't it just a question? And then he turns away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. So David's starting to repeat this question. What's going to happen to the guy who takes care of this challenger? When the words, so he says it to enough people then that in verse 31, when the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul. See, David's response was so exceptional in contrast with the whole army and Saul, the whole army of Israel, that word got to the king. Somebody's not scared. Somebody's not cowering in fear over this giant and his challenge. And so Saul then sent for him. Verse 32, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Ooh, that must have hurt. Because their hearts had been failing for 40 days. David just walks in here and says, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Basically, hey, nobody needs to be a coward. Nobody needs to be afraid. Your servant, David, will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant, David, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And naturally, the lion or bear then got upset. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and I struck him and I killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord, 
who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. And David took them off. He took a stick in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Now let's, let's pause. Because right there is where we learn our lessons. Right there are the three facets of a radically bold faith. Remember Goliath, okay? Nine foot six, wearing 125 pounds of armor, has a ginormous spear with a, with a huge head on it, has a shield bearer in front of him, has armor on his legs. For 40 days, he's been throwing down a challenge that nobody has dared to admit or nobody has dared to then engage with. Nobody has dared to, to accept. Nobody's faith generated action. But David walks into the scene, and his faith provokes him to action. So what is it about David's faith that provokes him to action? The first, you can see up there, is that faith is bold on behalf of God. Okay, if you want your faith to be bold, then your faith has to be bold on behalf of God. What do I mean by that? Look in verse 26. This is what I said before. David questions, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? See, everybody else prior had said, well, yeah, he's challenging us, but, but look at him. I can't take that. He can mock me. That's fine. I, I, can't, I can't handle it. He wins, basically. But look in verse 36. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since. That's an important word. He's saying the Philistine will die like those animals out in the wilderness. Why? Because he has taunted the armies of the living God. So David said God's honor is at stake, and I'm walking in boldness. I will be bold in my faith on behalf of God. Not for my own acclaim. Not for my own fame or reputation or status or, or anything like that. He says, this Philistine is challenging God. And so I'm going to be bold on behalf of God. Number two. Faith is bold because of God. Look in verse 37. David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. See, David was bold because of God and their past relationship. David had seen God work. 
He'd seen him allow David to kill these animals that, practically speaking, you don't generally reach out and grab a bear by the beard and whack it and hope it dies. But David had worked with God in the past, had seen the Lord work in his life and had accomplished things that he attributed to God's power. And so he said, look, I remember my past circumstances and how God has worked. And so that same God who worked here in these kind of ways, I will be bold because I trust him to work in this kind of a way right here, right now in this circumstance. So he said, on behalf of God, on behalf of the living God whom we all serve, you know, Israel and Saul, they should have been concerned about that, but they weren't. But David was concerned about that. And so he was bold. And he found then boldness as well because of God and because of the past that he's had with God. And then the third one is that faith is bold. Go ahead, go to the next one. Faith is bold in dependence on God. Here we read this. Look in verse Look in verse 37. After his statement about being bold and willing to engage the Philistine because of his past experience with the Lord, Saul finally says to David in verse 37, Go, and may the Lord be with you. And then there's a certain irony in the fact that Saul's next action is to clothe David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. See, again, there's such a contrast there. Saul's security, Saul's stability, his comfort, his, his safety was in armor, which is why he wasn't willing to go and, and take on a nine-foot-six giant clothed in 125 pounds of armor, right? He looked at his own armor, at his own weaponry, and said, I can't handle that. So then he says, piously, go and may the Lord be with you. And then he says, here, take my armor, because that's what's really going to keep you safe. So David, you know, tries them on. Verse 39, he girded his sword over his armor, and he tried, he tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. Quick sidebar. Everybody thinks of David as kind of like a runt, Right? Like, like he, he's, this, he's this little, little 12-year-old boy who's stick-skinny and really kind of short and just, just not, not, a, not a man. And, and I would beg to differ, right? He was the youngest, all right? But he wasn't necessarily some puny little runt. No, he wasn't Ben Hyman, and he wasn't Goliath, the giant, either. But maybe he was more... You know, Aaron Johnson or Adam Biltel, just sort of normal Joe, you know. <laughs> the point being, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't just sort of some, some little runt. Saul's armor didn't fit him, not because he was teeny, but Saul was the biggest in the land, right? David's brothers were big. If you remember, when Samuel went to anoint David, he was impressed by some of his brothers, Surely God is going to choose him. He's a big dude. And <laughs> Samuel made the same mistake. But, but that's when he learns that, no, 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 the Lord doesn't look on the outside as man looks. The Lord looks in the heart, right? So then he chooses the youngest, the one who, of all the boys who, who could have, should have received a blessing, the youngest was literally the last in line. Not because he was the runt, but because he was the youngest, all right? So just, 
Try and put a little bit of that flannel graph out of your mind and don't, don't consign David to runthood. Just maybe normalcy, all right? I uh, lost myself. All right. So David takes the armor off. Verse 40. Here's where the dependence come in, comes in. He takes the armor off and he doesn't then say, hey, can someone bring me a suit of armor or a, a, a set of armor that fits? He doesn't then say, is there a sword that might be more appropriate for me? He doesn't then say, look, I need the right kind of weapons. He says, look, just as I walked out against the bear and against the lion, when God proved himself faithful in the past, in the wilderness, in those times when they came and stole my sheep and God helped me strike them down, I'm going out like that. Because my God, and it's going to come out even more, my God is the one who fights for me. So he depended on the Lord. Verse 40, all he did was he took his stick in his hand. It's a little different from the weaver's beam. He took his stick in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. That's faith. He leaves, he's going to leave behind the whole army of Israel and King Saul up in his tent, probably in the back of the army. He's going to leave them all behind and he's going to walk, nay, he's even going to run to meet the Philistine. Something that for 40 days, for 80 challenges, every single man in Israel was unwilling to do. Why? It was on behalf of God. And it was because of God. And it was in dependence on God. So how does it go? How does it go? Verse 41. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy, which means kind of reddish in complexion with a handsome appearance. David was ready to go be in the Jewish boy bands of the day, basically. All right? He's a good-looking guy, young, handsome. And he disdained him. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. So now the Philistine is upping the ante, and he's saying, Curses upon you because of my Philistine gods. The Philistine also said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Just a little bit of trash talk here. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me. Okay, hear, hear his faith come out in his speech now, okay? Bold on behalf of God, bold because of God, and bold in dependence upon God. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the name of the Lord of armies, the angel armies that we sang of, and the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted, you've taunted that Lord. This day, the Lord will deliver you up into my hands and I will strike you down and I will remove your head from you 
And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. David has just said, look, buddy, deals off. I'm coming for you, and I'm coming for your whole army too. You see that? He doesn't say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to beat you, Goliath, and then you're all going to serve us. No, no, no. He says, look, you've taunted the Lord. That was a mistake. You've taunted the Lord, and now the Lord's going to deliver you, and I will strike you down, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth. Why? Look at verse 46. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. It's about God's reputation. God, uh, David wanted God's name to be exalted and famous and revered in all the land. And not just all the earth, but look at verse 47. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. For 40 days, twice a day, Goliath delivered a challenge. They didn't have megaphones. They didn't have PA systems, right? So the natural acoustics of that environment would have been such that everybody would have been able to hear Goliath's challenge. And on the flip side, everybody would have been able to hear David's reply. All right, so David was saying, I need to make sure that all this assembly, and I think he's looking back to Israel, I need to make sure that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. All of that build up, and here's the conflict. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Forty days, 80 taunts couple of back and forths, David runs, slings, smack, boom. He's gone. He's down. Can you just, just imagine the hush that fell over that? I mean, talk about kind of anticlimactic, right? I mean, you're, 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 you're hoping for like some battle royale of just... Everybody, you know, going back and forth, back and forth. Who's going to win? Who's going to win? Ha, ah, they're going to, he's got the upper hand. No, he's got the upper hand. No, no, no. David just runs out, zings a stone at him, boom, sinks into his forehead, and he falls to the ground. Verse 50, thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and he killed him. But he had made a promise to the Philistine and there was no sword in David's hand. Because remember, he said, I'm going to strike you down and remove your head from you. So he struck him down, but he didn't have a sword. So David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath. So again, 
Goliath was wearing 125 pounds of armor. He had a spear with a 15-pound head on it with a shaft like a weaver's beam. A nine-foot-six guy, his sword is going to be a behemoth of a sword. So it's not like, you know, only a boy named David. You know, little, little, little teeny David. It's like, can you picture it? I can't lift it up. Like, it's not that. He takes out the, the, the giant's sword, this behemoth of a sword, and he drew it out of his sheath, and he killed him, and he cut off his head with it. See, you sling a stone, you knock the guy down, everybody falls silent, and is like, oh, what happened? Is Goliath going to get up? He's not getting up, right? No doubt. It's a done deal. God prevailed. On behalf of God, independence upon God, and because of God, David engaged with this outrageous situation and prevails. Verse 51, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley. See, the deal had been called off, right? David said, no, 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 we're coming after all of you. And they pursued the Philistines as far as the valley into the gates of Ekron, which is a major city in Philistia. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sha'araim, even to Gath and Ekron, which is five to ten miles west of the valley. So for five to ten miles from where David slew Goliath, the Israelites pursued, overtook, and killed the Philistine armies. And the sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Then David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. pretty radical faith. David's faith stood out in contrast to a whole nation, a whole nation and a king that was supposed to be completely loyal and bound to God. And yet David's faith stood out. And yet David ultimately is not the only one that walked faith like this. David is not the, um, the biblical anomaly, right? Like, look, here's, here's the normal faith in the Bible. And then, la, there's David. No, no, there's others. This is biblical faith. This is what faith in the real and living God does to his people. It makes them bold. It makes them willing to engage in situations based upon who God is and what he has said that would otherwise normally not be engaged with. Think about Daniel. I think about what he was willing to endure. Think about what he accepted and was not willing to compromise on because of faith in God. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and what they did and what they endured and what they were willing to accept. There are men and women of the Old and New Testament who followed their convictions, who allowed their faith their belief in the truth about God to steer their lives in amazing ways. 
But surely all that's too old, right? It's, it's the Bible. It's ancient news. I mean, what does that have to do with us today? Stuff like that doesn't happen anymore, does it? Well, we would all agree that we serve the same God, same character. He has revealed his truth to us about what it means to walk after him, which is what David was doing. How do you walk after him? How do you fear him? How do you honor him? Okay, I know what that means. I'm going to do it. And if that means going after a, 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 a giant, I'll go after him. We serve the same God, and he expects and empowers the same faithful living. I admit, I'm very happy I don't see nine foot six giants slinging challenges around very often. But there are challenges to our faith all the time, and there are attacks against our God all the time. And so the question is, does God think that we should be bold on behalf of him? I think yes. Does God think that we should be bold because of him? I think yes. And I think we have things to look back on to fuel our boldness, just like David did. Does he expect us to be bold in dependence upon him? Absolutely. There was a... um, missionary to China, a woman named Gladys Aylward. How many have heard of her? Fabulous. It's just a little, little teeny lady. I married a beautiful lady named Kimberly who's five feet even. She's small. Gladys Aylward, five feet, was 4'10". Boop. <laughs> Even smaller, okay? Gladys Aylward served in China in a situation that was not conducive to a woman wielding any sort of influence and yet had built up quite a ministry of serving through orphanages in a hospitality house and interacting with politicians and the government of the day. This was in the, in the 1900s, mid to late, uh, early to mid-1900s. And here's a story about this kind of situation playing out in our day and age, essentially. All right, the, the inn that she worked at, that she, uh, she, where she hosted people and sought to minister the gospel to them was called the Inn of the Eight Happinesses. Someone was, here's, here's the story. Uh, someone was pounding on the gate of the Inn of Eight Happinesses. Gladys, a word, you must come quickly. As Gladys followed the messenger, she could hear terrible screams coming from inside the local prison. It sounded like a riot. But why had the Mandarin, which is the, 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 the ruler of that area, the mayor of sorts, why had the Mandarin sent for her? Confused, the small four foot ten English woman bowed respectfully to the Mandarin who was standing with the governor of the prison. Thank goodness you have come, said the governor, wringing his hands. You must go in and stop the riot. Gladys was shocked. Me? Why don't you send in your soldiers? Impossible, the man cried. These prisoners are murderers and thieves. The soldiers would certainly be killed. But, but Gladys protested, if I went in there, they would kill me. 
Oh, no, said the governor. You tell our people that God lives inside of you. If what you say is true, surely your God will protect you when you go inside the prison. Boom. Gauntlet thrown. Gladys stared at the two men. Were, were they making fun of her? But they were serious. She realized if she did not believe God could protect her, she could forget being a missionary in China. She swallowed hard. All right, she said slowly, open the gate. Gladys was so frightened, her knees were shaking. Inside the prison courtyard, a horrible sight greeted her. Prisoners were chasing one another with knives and screaming like madmen. Dead and wounded prisoners were lying everywhere. And then a huge man with a little debated whether it was an axe or a cleaver, a large, sharp object, a huge man heading straight towards her with a large, sharp implement. Gladys was so terrified she couldn't move, but when the man was only a few feet away, he stopped. And one by one, the other prisoners stopped yelling and running and just looked at her. Who, who was this short little woman? What was she doing here? Suddenly Gladys spoke. Give me the axe, she demanded, holding out her hand. Without a word, the man handed her the axe. Gladys looked at the prisoner. They were dressed in dirty rags. They were so thin, their ribs showed. They looked cold and miserable. And suddenly, instead of being afraid of them, she felt sorry for them. I've been sent by the governor of the prison to find out why you're fighting. And at first, no one spoke. And a young prisoner came forward. My name is Fang, he said. We don't know why we're fighting. We're hungry and we have nothing to do day after day. They were basically just going nuts. Nothing to do, nothing productive, just angry, upset, hungry, starving. And Gladys frowned. These men had been locked up like animals. And basically she then goes on and because of that demonstration of faith is able to promote a whole, uh, a whole um, oh, what's the word? I'm thinking renovation, but that's not it. Uh, she, she, they change all the approaches to prison in that area. Okay? They, they feed them differently. They give them things to do productively. She gets to share the gospel. She gets to hold Bible studies. People come to faith. I mean, it's just, it's just a tremendous situation. And God's reputation was at stake in that situation. And she said, all right. On behalf of God, because of God, and independence upon God, I'm going to walk into this prison riot and hope I don't die because God's name is on the line. And this is just one story. There's myriads and myriads of stories, and that's a significant story, and you can, you can press that down into the very details of life. Why do you make this move? Why do you not make this move? Why do you take this promotion? Why do you talk this to this neighbor? Why do you deny or, or, or contradict what this person says? Why do you spend your money this way? Why do you not spend your money this way? Every situation that we find ourselves in has intersection with what it means to have faith in God. And so the question is, in those situations, do we have a concern? Is our faith bold on behalf of God? Is it bold because of God? Do we look back and say, I have seen my God work, and I know he will? And do we depend on the Lord in those situations. So for our lives, what, what do we do? What do we do? Number one, I would say this, know God. K-N-O-W, know God. 
observe how he works. Sometimes we have to open our, our, our spiritual and mental and heart eyes and just observe. How does he answer prayer? How does he work in people's lives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? How does he work in the world around us? Know him and how he works so that that then can fuel our response to circumstances currently. Be bold for God, especially when his glory is at stake. Don't back down if God's name is on the line. Trust the Lord to work on your behalf in whatever situation you find yourself when your Lord and your Savior and his reputation and glory are on the line. And then depend on him, not yourself. Now, now David didn't just walk out plump himself down in the middle of the grass and say, okay, Lord, knock him down, right? David took care of his end of the, the, the business. He walked out there, he slung his stone, and he expected the Lord to work. So you take care of your role in a situation, but not depending on your own schemes or manipulation of a situation to bring about the end that you want. That's the difference. Okay, that's, the, that's the armor versus the sling, in the midst of any situation you find yourself, you got to know who is in control of it all and depend on him for that. I'm, uh, I'm encouraged by David's example. <laughs> and I'm flabbergasted by the stuff that goes on in the Bible. And then I'm amazed when I think that that's my God. And then I'm provoked to live like it. <laughs> 